You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to turn to James chapter 5. If you want to follow along uh, and you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. We have plenty in the pews right in front of you. Uh, You can turn to page 1073, as we would love for you to follow along, and we're going to be, as as he just read, in verses 7 through 12 of James chapter 5. And you're going to understand, as we dig into this text, how that fourth verse that we just sang could not have been more fitting for what we are going to look at this morning. But the older I get, before we dive in, the older I get, the faster I feel like the world is spinning. You know what I mean? If you... I know some of you are further along, and it's probably spinning even faster for you. But the reality is, there is so much that comes at us so fast these days. And it feels like even with all of that, we're still in a hurry. The the thing that we hate the most, it feels like as a culture, is having to wait for anything. Right? Chick-fil-A, COVID, no problem. Let's just go ahead and add two more lines, or three more lines, or however many lines they can fit in that parking lot to get your food as fast as humanly possible, and maybe even more than humanly possible. I don't know. But I was thinking through all of that and and just thinking through uh, as a kid riding in a car when we would take family vacations that were, you know, we would go a little ways. And I was just thinking about all the things we would do to keep ourselves from getting bored. And they involved things like staring out the window. Um, They involved maybe coloring a little bit. We would play this game where we would look at license plates and we'd use the letters on the license plate to see how many words we could come up with. And then eventually one of us would get tired of doing that and we would just go back to staring out the window. But if you take a trip with the kids now that's of any length of time and maybe not that long of a time and you dare do it without some type of movie or electronic, all I can tell you is good luck. Uh, But the reality is we've conditioned them for that. That's not so much on them. But everything around us feels like it is built for speed. Everything is built around us not having to wait And if we're really honest, we kind of stink at waiting. One of my favorite uh, comedians uh, had a bit a while back talking about this idea of being so busy, being not having enough time for everything. And so as part of that, he talks about the the box of Pop-Tarts that are at his house. And one day, again, because I guess this is what comedians do, they take the littlest things, and he was looking at the side of the box, and it had a set of instructions on the side of the box about how to get your Pop-Tart ready. But what's interesting, not that they would create that, but it's the fact that they created two sets of instructions. Because apparently, if you don't have time to wait a minute to a minute and a half in the toaster, they have microwave instructions which say three seconds. And his whole point was, if there's something going on in your life that you don't have a minute to toast your Pop-Tart, that you have to go to the microwave, maybe, just maybe, there's too much going on in your life. But the reality is, if we're really honest, we're not that far removed. We don't like to wait, we, we, or we are not good at it, and, and when we have to do it, we are definitely not patient in our waiting. That applies, I promise, not the Pop-Tart part, but the waiting part to our text this morning. And so as we jump into James chapter 5, I want you to see that, that since Christ is coming again, Christians are to remain patient and steadfast in the midst of trials. And then for us this morning, our takeaway is that in view of the certain hope of the return of Jesus, let us endure with all patience any oppression 
and brokenness in our current circumstances. Those first words are very important in view of the certain hope of the return of Jesus. But this passage is one of those reasons why I love that we preach through or teach through books of the Bible. Because, to be honest, in most of our translations, if you're following along, there is a paragraph break between verse 6 and verse 7. And because of that, it would be really easy for us if we were not teaching through a book, but to come just to James 5 today and pop in and go, hey, I'm going to teach this sermon on the importance of patience. And the reality is a sermon on the importance of patience wouldn't be all that terrible, It's part of the fruit of the Spirit. The Bible has much to say about us being patient with one another. It has much to say about us having a a, a being willing to bear with one another. But it is vitally important for us this morning to understand that what James is going to say beginning in verse 7 and following is in the context of all that we looked at last week in verses 1 through 6. In other words, the response of these believers that that James is writing to, to the oppression and to the injustice, is to be governed by God's sovereignty, and particularly the understanding of the fact that the next thing on God's calendar, if you will, is the return of Jesus. The next thing on God's calendar is the return of Jesus for all of human history. So yes, we are to be patient, but not a patient like attitude with others, but a frame of reference or a state of mind that is patient because it rests in what the Lord is doing and what He will do ahead for us. Outline's pretty simple this morning. There's going to be one overarching truth that we're going to spend some time talking about, and from that, we're going to see four temptations to be avoided and three examples to be followed. So before we can dig into the rest of our text, we have to stop really at the very beginning because we need to see that the main emphasis of this passage is that when it says in verse 7, we are to be patient until the Lord's coming. We're going to focus on the until the Lord's coming. Because if you don't understand or you don't believe to be true that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back, then nothing else really matters for us to talk about this morning. Because for James and all the other New Testament writers, if God doesn't keep his promise to come back, to return, to do away with all the brokenness, to make everything right, then there is really no hope that anything will ever be better or different. And look, I get it. When we say that we believe that God created and we believe somehow that human history is somewhat linear, that God has created, God is acting, and that there will be a conclusion, we are bizarre to the world around us. I get it. When we make a statement that we think that that all that God is doing is headed towards a finite conclusion in a world that likes to think that life is somehow cyclical, that we can just get it better the next time, or maybe it all means nothing, that the, the entire world, the entire galaxy has been contracting and expanding for, for tons of time, and all of this is just nothingness that we're experiencing. But the reality is, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what we believe. We believe that God created in time and space, and that this isn't all cyclical, that it's all headed somewhere, that God has a plan for this creation, His creation, and that it's headed towards some final outcome. Some final scene of his great play, if you will. And so when we affirm these things, we immediately find ourselves at odds with our culture. C.S. Lewis wrote a long time ago, a long time ago for some people, maybe not for others, but he wrote back in 1960 this essay that was called The World's Last Night, and part of that he says this. 
The doctrine of the second coming is deeply uncongenial to the whole evolutionary or developmental character of modern thought. We've been taught to think that the world is something that grows slowly towards perfection, something that progresses or evolves. Christian apocalyptic offers us no such hope. It does not foretell of a gradual decay. Instead, it foretells of a sudden, violent end imposed from without. An extinguisher popped onto the candle, a brick flung at the gramophone, like I said, a long time ago, and a curtain rung down on the play where somebody yells, Halt! And it's over. So to affirm that creation is a divine act of a sovereign God and to affirm that the meaning of all history is established in terms of that sovereign God, it's imperative for each one of you here today to think through and confirm in your own heart if that is true. It's imperative that you figure out if that is true. Because if it isn't true, then there is no hope in anything that this Bible has to offer. And there is no hope that there is a God who will one day come back into this broken world and make all things new. So for 2,000 years now, we join in with other Christians who have been watching for, believing in, yearning for, praying for the return of Christ. Now look, much has been written, much has been debated on exactly the circumstances of what will be going on in the world when Christ returns. And so we're always looking for these markers. And look, to be honest, the Bible gives us a lot to process about what's going to happen that leads to Jesus' return. And first of all, I think the Lord is honored. I think the Lord's honored when we struggle and we work through those things. But a word of caution, I feel like, is due that we never let our study or the academics of a topic like this somehow cloud us and make us miss the fact of what is plain and what is meant for encouragement. So for our purposes today, I want to give you, I want to attempt to give you what I believe is plain and important for us to know about the return of Christ. There are other points, of course, that we can talk about and be encouraged by, but these four, I believe, are clear and help us sum up what is going to happen in Christ's return. And they all start with us, so it should be pretty easy. The first thing is that it will be secretive. Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 13, verse 32, Now concerning the day or the hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor even the Son, but only the Father. Every so often, somebody will write a book or publish an article telling us exactly when Jesus is coming back based on this or that or the other. The reality is that's not, we don't know. Jesus says when he was in his earthly ministry, he didn't know. So it's foolish for us to spend any time worried about that. Secondly, it is sudden. Go look at Matthew 24 when you have time. And it talks about two workers in the field and all of a sudden one's gone. What we're getting at is it's going to be a pretty average day. You're going to go to work. Someone's going to be getting ready for school. Somebody's going to be getting ready to take their driver's license to get their test. Somebody's going to be having surgery that day. Babies are born. All the everyday things. And then Jesus is going to return. Secretive, sudden. The third one, spectacular. I need an S. Uh, but spectacular, what I mean by that is, is it's going, nobody's going to miss it. Somehow, someway, God is going to act in a way that everybody on the face of the earth knows that Christ has returned. With all the technology we have, I was thinking this week of how could we even possibly accomplish that in the remotest parts of the world all at one time. And the reality is, I don't know. But God does, and he's going to do it. And then lastly, it'll be a day of separation. That when Jesus returns, it's as though the, the, the playwright walks out onto the stage and the play is over. 
And at that point, there is no more. There is no more opportunity for people to come to faith in Christ. But those who are in Christ will be taken with Him to live with eternity with our God. And those who are not in Christ will be separated and live forever apart from that God and His judgment. It will be a somber day in that way. It will be a day of separation. So I want to give you those as what is plain and I think important for our discussion. But in a day that we worry about mentions, let me give you one. Nothing is stated more frequently, nothing is stated more emphatically in the New Testament than the return of Jesus. It's mentioned over 300 times. So it's obviously foundational to the gospel of Jesus Christ that he is coming back. And so if we're not longing for, if we're not watching for Jesus to return, then this life will so often feel and will so often become overwhelming. But I believe, as I believe James does here, that Jesus is returning because God has and because God will fulfill his promises. And so it's because of this overarching truth today, church, that the rest of our passage can be of use to us. The rest of our passage can be an encouragement to us today. So with that in mind, let's look at the four temptations to be avoided. When I say four temptations to be avoided, and we read through the text, they may not necessarily be jumping off the page that there was a whole bunch of temptations to avoid, but let me say it like this. When a biblical author, a biblical writer calls us to something, often we can turn it around and see what it is that we are to be tempted, or we could be tempted by, and that we should avoid. So in light of the fact that God will fulfill his promise and Jesus will return, let's look at these pitfalls to avoid. I just give them to you. Impatience, grumbling, faint-heartedness, embroidered speech. The first one, impatience, is pretty obvious, right? Look at the word. It's used twice in verse 7. It's used again in verse 8, again in verse 10. The word endurance used twice in verse 11. James is clearly calling us to avoid being impatient. Now, he uses two Greek words there for, for patience and endurance, but, but really behind that, it's conveying the same idea here. And so what James is alerting his readers to, and it's something that I think we're familiar with if we're honest, is there is a heart-level danger to the people of God in the face of injustice. What do I mean by that? Heart-level danger. Let me start with what I don't mean. I don't mean that we aren't to care and to care deeply about the injustices of this world. We are to care and care deeply about the millions of lives lost to abortion. We are to tend and to care deeply for those who are orphaned and those who are in foster care. We are to speak up and when we see people mistreated because of the beautiful ethnicity that God created them in. And I keep going on and on about the things that the Bible speaks that we should care about. In fact, James in the end of chapter 1 says, Caring for orphans and widows is pure and undefiled religion. It is right. We should labor for what is right and good and pleasing to God. But the heart-level danger that we have to be careful of is to take matters into our own hands. When James says, be patient, who is he saying be patient with? Well, I think part of it is those people that could be the source of our injustice, the source of our impression, the source of our hurt. In our immediate context, James is writing to believers who are being oppressed by the rich of their community. And they look out and they see all of that the rich are doing, and they're doing well. And they look around and they see that they're poor and they are oppressed, and they're wondering, hey, what's going on? And I think they would be tempted very severely to take matters into their own hands. It's not a far jump 
to see how one's impatience against a real or a perceived injustice could reveal itself by one becoming an avenger or a retaliator. It wouldn't be that far of a jump to see when you feel oppressed, when you feel like you've been hurt, when you feel like there is someone who is treating you unfairly, to say, well, this is wrong, and if God's not going to do something about it, then I'm going to. It's really not that hard of a jump there. But ultimately, I believe James is telling us to be patient with God. Because anytime we grow impatient, if we really do think it out, we're really impatient and we're angry with God. Because we're telling God, God, you're not acting the way I think you should act. God, you're not acting in the time frame I think you should act. And when we're impatient with someone else or something else, ultimately we're frustrated that God hasn't done something differently. Or that he's not made them to do something differently and we're angry and impatient with God. Any of you felt that way? I definitely have. We get impatient because God has made a promise. God has said this is who he is. And when we look around in our narrow view of all of time and we see, God, you're not doing what I think you ought to be doing, and I, we get impatient with God. So James says, don't be impatient because even though you can't see it now, God is still in control and we're still headed towards the day that he already predefined when Jesus will return. But we don't see that always. The second temptation to avoid may not really jump off the page, as it were. So obviously is the last one. But as we patiently await the Lord's return, as we endure the brokenness of this present world, we must not grow weary. Look at verse 8. Your translation may say, strengthen your hearts. It may say, establish your hearts. The Greek word behind that has the meaning of tying something down, of, of making something secure. Look, you may resign yourself to the fact that we have to wait on God. You may work really diligently to be patient in your waiting on God, but that doesn't mean that we won't still struggle with becoming weary. I know that there are people probably in this room who struggle with anxiety and with depression, and all of us at times come to anxious moments. And so if I ask myself, what is the source of our anxiety? What is the source of our faint-heartedness? Is it not uncertainty about the eventual outcomes? Why are we anxious? Uncertainty about the eventualities is what leads us to faint-heartedness. Let me give you an example. If you knew for certain that the diagnosis you were getting ready to receive would result in treatment and complete healing so that you would live another 60, 70, 80 years, then the diagnosis you were getting ready to receive ultimately would hold no alarm for you, right? The inconvenience, the hassle of the going to the treatments, all of that would be lost sight of because at the end of it all, we knew with certainty that we would be healed, that all would be well for us for the foreseeable future. But the reality is, we generally don't have knowledge of that. And so that leads us to be anxious. Maybe it's how your kids will turn out or how this job is going to work out or how we're going to make all of our bills. We don't have all of the answers and so we become anxious. And the anxiety that produced in us that kind of faint-heartedness that James is warning against here. See, what I think James is saying when he says, establish our hearts or strengthen your hearts, I think it means ultimately to rest our hearts in the ultimate certainty. And what is that ultimate certainty? What's our overarching truth is that God is in control and He's coming back to make all things right. When we 
rest in that. When our hearts rest in that, we won't grow faint-hearted. We won't grow weary. Look now at verse 9. Brothers and sisters, do not complain or do not grumble against one another so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. This verse, to be honest, feels out of place. I don't know if you got that when, when he was reading, when Mr. Stephen was reading it. But all of a sudden, we're talking about this idea of patience, and all of a sudden, he jumps out to this idea of grumbling against one another. Think about a time in your life where you felt wronged or hurt or oppressed by some system or by someone, and you didn't feel like you had the authority or the power to change your situation. Maybe it was at work. Maybe a superior treated you unfairly. Maybe it was a health-related, and there was something out of your control that you felt like was unfair. Maybe it was you walked through a period of loss of a relationship or of a loved one through death that you had no control over. Children, for you, I want you to think through this as well. Can you remember a time in which maybe your parents disciplined you or, 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 or scolded you and you felt like it was unfair and you didn't have the authority or the power to do anything different about it? When you have that moment in mind, what happens to the relationships closest to you? How often when pressure from the outside comes on us or comes to a family or comes to a business and suddenly the people frustrated by their inability to tackle the oppression or the hurt from without start to blame everybody from within. If you hadn't, why didn't you, well if you had just, and then all of a sudden all the people that are supposed to be united against a common enemy begin to start grumbling against one another. So the more I think about this verse, the more I'm like, yeah, I'm aware. I'm aware of how close the temptation to grumble is at my doorstep, especially when I feel wronged or I feel helpless to change a situation that I feel like is unfair. I'm reminded of the parable Jesus taught about a man who had a great debt, and it was an insurmountable debt. He would never be able to pay it off. And he goes before the judge, and the judge says, wiped it all away. You would think the man would run out of that courtroom, he would be jumping up and down, he would be shouting to the hilltops all about this amazing judge who just wiped his debt away, hugging the necks of random people on the streets. But instead, Jesus says, he goes out and he finds somebody that owes him so very little in comparison. And he takes him to court and he tries to have that guy pay it back. Friends, so often we forget the debt that we've been forgiven in Christ. And when we grumble against or we complain about one another, we are acting as though somehow we have the authority to judge them, forgetting that we, like them, had to be forgiven a great debt. And James reminds us that the only one who has the authority and the only one who has the ability to rightly judge us is standing at the door. That idea of he that he's coming back soon, he is there. And so in the midst of our oppression, in the midst of our hurt, when we've been wronged or taken advantage of, not only are we to remain patient, not only are we to remain steadfast, but let us also avoid the temptation of grumbling to and especially about God's dear children. And then lastly, there's the temptation to embroider or embellish our speech. We do that usually to give it more weight. James has already, if you've been with us, in his letter, tied faithful, active faith with honest, controlled speech. He's linked them together. But to be honest, it feels, again, a little bit weird that he puts this verse in his conclusion part of the letter. 
But I think as we patiently wait Christ's return, we are called to do something. We're called to run the race that God has given us. And if we look at the end of verse 11, it reminds us that God is compassionate and merciful. And when we read that the Lord is compassionate and merciful, our eyes, our hearts should be drawn to be reminded that He is a God who continues to save sinners. Sinners just like me and sinners just like you. And when we think about how does God desire in His creation that people would be saved, the overwhelming method is through the declaration of Jesus as the Messiah. And so as, as God has appointed this, until He returns, He would use people like me and people like you to make that declaration. And so while we wait for Jesus to return, we have a job to do, regardless of the circumstances you're in. And I think verse 12 is here to remind us to have an honest, controlled speech so that we could be a clear and a trustworthy mouthpiece for our God as we share His good news. We don't need to add to our speech. One, because we don't have the authority to do so. I can't, I can't promise you on the basis of anything else other than me. And secondly, I shouldn't have to add to my speech because I just shouldn't have to. It should be trustworthy. So church, may we protect our speech not add to it, so that our proclamation towards one another and towards our watching world may be trustworthy. From the temptations to the examples, three examples, they're right there, clear in your text. The first one's the farmer. In verse 7, after he's given the exhortation to be patient, James gives the illustration of the farmer who waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. It's a lot of hard work in farming. And I say that in a room like this, knowing that many of you know that way better than I do. But the farmers and their helpers, they do their parts, they work as hard as they can, but when all of their part is finished, they have to wait. They had to, in this instance, in this context that James is writing, wait for the rains to come in autumn to germinate the seeds, and then wait for further rains in the springtime that would strengthen the stalks for the production of the buds that would ripen and produce harvestable grain. And so while what they're waiting for is valuable, it's precious, it supported their family, it was life-giving. And so the farmer waits, and he waits patiently. And so the point of the application is clear. You, believers, James says, you need to wait also patiently. Just as the farmer is waiting in confident expectation that the Lord will bring the rains, you Likewise, need to wait in confident expectation that Jesus will return just as he promised. Secondly, the prophets. Look at verse 10. Take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. Of course, when we think about the prophets, you have to realize there were false prophets who didn't speak in the name of the Lord. They would speak pleasantries and shocking people like them. And they would invite them, and there would be big crowds, and they wanted them to come and to speak and to sing to them. The prophets of God, who spoke in the name of the Lord, they were not so popular. They didn't draw big crowds. They were saying what God told them to say, which was often a hard message. And as a result, they are a classic example of the suffering which comes from obedience and required the patience that James is calling for us to have. I don't have the time here today to go through a bunch of examples for you of this. What I will do is take my 
couple minutes here and just implore you, encourage you to come at 9 o'clock on Sunday mornings. It's when we have our adult equip hour in this room. We've just started a new series on First and Second Kings in the Old Testament. And what we will do through that is we're going to see Israel's history. And along the way, we're going to start hitting a lot of these prophets that James is referring to. And you're going to see this pattern of God speaking and using them in some really difficult times. And yet God's faithful. All right, that was my shameless plug for equip class. Uh, but let me tell you, it just works so nicely into our text today that I couldn't pass it up. Uh, but the reality is the prophets of the Lord were often given a hard assignment. So some suffered loss, some suffered heartache, some suffered abandonment. Yet they patiently spoke the words of the Lord to the people of the Lord. If we had time, we could look at Elijah in 1 Kings 18, Jeremiah in Jeremiah 38, the response of the people to Amos and so on. But let me just give you this, what Stephen gives us in Acts 7. It's so comprehensive, the reaction of the people to the prophets, that when Stephen gives his great sermon in Acts 7, right before he's martyred, at the end of it all, when he's finishing up, It's as though he's looking at the Jews in the eyes and he says, was there ever even a prophet that your ancestors did not persecute? Was there ever a prophet that your ancestors did not persecute? And so James says in verse 11, speaking of the example of the prophets, so we count as blessed those who have endured. I wonder where James got that phrase. I don't know, maybe his half-brother Jesus Matthew 5, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. The prophets are a great example for us to see how they endured patiently while being faithful to the Lord. And then lastly, James gives us the, the example of Job. I chose to go through these examples clustered together. I know sometimes we do this and we we separate the text based on the example. Paul does that often. But in this case, James isn't doing that. I feel like James is piling on the examples. He's not really giving us demarcations of the text. So the the farmer waits patiently on the Lord, but he's he's not really enduring anything. The prophets do. The prophets have to endure a lot of hardship and a lot of loss to faithfully follow the Lord. None of them quite like Job. Job goes through much, much more. And, and look, I've got to be quick, I get it, but I don't want to make an assumption about anybody in here today who may or may not know that story. And since I want all of us to enjoy the weight of this example, let me quickly give you the story of Job. The Bible said, and you can read more about it in the book of Job in the Bible, but what it says is there's a period of time in which God is, is in heaven and his angels are before him, and Satan comes before God. And this, this, a lot of this is going to be Ryan's translation, uh, so just know that. But Satan comes before God, and, he say, and God's asking him some questions. And he says, hey, have you heard about my servant Job? He's faithful. He blesses me. And Satan goes, well, of course he does. Everything his hand has touched, you've blessed. He's wealthy. He's got a huge family. He's healthy. People know him. He has status. Why would he not bless you? But you take all that away, he will curse you to your face. So God says, okay, you can't touch him, but anything else he has within your power. Which, side note, how awesome it is that unlike what Hollywood thinks about Satan and God being somehow on a parallel, no, no, Satan is having to ask and God is having to grant. So just an aside, but back to our story. One awful day, the Bible tells us, servants run up 
to Job and they say, Job, all of your oxen and donkeys and the servants that were with them were killed. And while he's sharing, another one comes up and says, Job, all of your sheep and all those shepherds that are with them were killed. Another one runs up and says, all of your camels and the servants with them are killed. And if that's not all terrible enough, while they're still sharing this, another one runs up and says, Job, all of your sons and daughters were eating together. And a strong wind came up and it knocked the four corners of the house and it collapsed and all of your children are dead. The Bible says that Job got up and he tore his robe and he shaved his head and he fell down and worshipped the Lord. He says, Naked I have come from my mother's womb and naked I will return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What? That is not what my response would be. And yet he remains faithful. And then quickly another scene. Satan's back in front of God. And God says, hey, you tried to turn him against me, but have you considered my servant Job? And he says, yeah, but he's still healthy. He says, fine, you can't kill him, but anything else to his body. And Satan goes out and he strikes him with sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. So badly that it says that Job takes some shards of pottery and he's scraping his skin, I'm assuming to get some kind of relief. And his wife who Satan left on the first round, I think he knew what he was doing, comes up to him and says, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. That's a supportive wife right there. Um, And at the end of chapter 2, the Bible says that, that Job responds to his wife and says, you speak as a foolish woman speaks. Should I only accept good from God and not adversity? The story goes on. He has three friends. They're not helpful, not friends. Uh, who give him terrible counsel. And he does, he goes off and questions God some, and God responds, not by answering his questions, but by reminding him that he's God, and and he has a plan, and he's been working long before Job came on the scene, and he's going to be working long after Job's gone. And Job has to come to the realization that God is God, and he is not. In chapter 42, Job says, Surely I spoke about things I did not understand, things too wondrous for me to know. I had heard reports about you, but now my eyes have seen you. And what he's saying is, I heard about your faithfulness. But when I lost my health, when I lost my income and my wealth, when I lost the affection and the companionship of my children, then I heard, then what I had heard with my ears, I now saw with my eyes. In other words, God, I now know you. Don't just believe it, but I I don't just heard it, but now I know you to be faithful. And after that, the Lord restores to Job everything he lost and much more as a show of God's faithfulness. So why Job is an example? Well, because nobody's lost. Until Christ came on the scene, nobody has lost as much as Job. Nobody has had to endure such physical ailments. No one has had to endure such faithless counsel. And yet Job endured in the midst of it, knowing that he wasn't God, but God was in control and had a plan. And and the reward for for Job was God's exceedingly abundant blessing. Look, the story of Job isn't there so we can learn that we're going to get earthly riches. The story of Job serves as a point to say, a teacher, that when the end of all things in your life comes, God's abundant blessings will be more blessings than you can even fathom. Because in Christ, when all things are done, what you gain in Christ is far more than you can possibly imagine. Job didn't know all that stuff was going on in heaven. The Bible peeled back the curtain so we could learn 
what Job had to learn is that God is always and will always be in control. And so while we may not understand what he's doing, while we may not know uh, why he's doing it, and we may not know how long it's going to take God to act, we are simply called to wait patiently and steadfastly because our God is in control. Church, there's only one major thing left on the timeline of human history. And God's already told us what it is. The return of Jesus and the completion of all things. God is going to act decisively as He always has. But it's not for you and me to know when. It's for us to be ready, to be striving forward with a peace that leads to patience, that leads to patient hearts, that leads to patience with God, that leads to patience in difficult circumstances. So as we begin to conclude our look at these verses today, I want you to know I've been praying and continue to pray that you are challenged to be patient in the Lord. But yet I also want you to be very encouraged to know that God is on His throne. No matter what is going on in your life, God is on His throne. He is still moving us towards the end of all things that He set out to do from the very beginning. Nothing that's happened has changed the fact that what God started, God will finish. But I feel like I would be remiss if I wrap up today and I don't point out something that James is trying to make clear and will make even more clear next week. When we study texts like this, it is very easy for us to hear them and to study them with the context of our own self in view. But this text isn't given to us today so that each one of you can be encouraged only. It is for that. But it's also so that we may together, collectively, encourage one another. The entire letter has had the backdrop of Christians in the midst of the trials of this life. We know what that's like. We know what trials are like. We feel that brokenness. But our passage still says we must steadfastly endure even during those tough times. Then how are we to do that? One of the most beautiful ways God has set up for us to be able to endure with the pressures of this life bearing down on us is together. Well, Ryan, how in the world did you get a text from patience with the Lord to, hey, we need to be doing life together? Here's, here's how. As we're in our missional communities throughout the week, as we're in D groups, as we're sharing life together, as we are sharing our hearts, as we are, as we are sharing the struggles of our life, we recognize all of us at times struggle with the brokenness of this world, with feeling trapped, with feeling oppressed. All of us feel that. And the reality is, and here we finish this out before you, before you judge it too quickly, but what we don't need in those moments is simply a flippant, I'll pray for you, or God has a purpose for this, or even a well-meaning but generic, I'm here if you need anything. We don't only need that. We need very specific encouragements. We need to preach the full gospel, the full goodness of the gospel to one another. Namely, that God has an eternal purpose that He is working out. And even though you may be experiencing hurt and loss and abandonment, He has never left you. He is here with you now. And He has a plan for you and all who are in Christ that He will one day come back and you will be with Him in glory when all things are made right and new. And then in that context, yes, pray for them. In that context, serve them. In that context, be there with them. In fact, it's because of that context you can say to them, until Christ returns or until he calls one of us home, I'm going to walk alongside of you, bearing with you the struggles of this life. 
Because church, we aren't simply members of the same church. The Bible says that we are brothers and sisters, and that doesn't stop when we walk out of this door, and that doesn't stop whenever we move away or one of us dies. We are brothers and sisters in Christ for eternity. So we're going to pray in just a minute, and then I'm going to try to hopefully encourage, as I've just asked you to do with this text. I want to do that. I want to encourage us as we finish today. So pray with me first, and then I'll do that. Father in heaven, God, you are good. And God, I thank you that you give us your word to know who you are, to know who we are, to know how we ought to live in light of who you are. And God, I'm thankful that so many times your, your word reminds us that, yes, Christ came into our brokenness. Yes, he lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. Yes, he died on the cross was buried and rose again that we just celebrated Easter. But God, we're also reminded and thankful that you are coming back. Because God, if we're really honest, this world's really messed up. And so often we feel that, we experience that. And at times it feels like, are you really there? But God, we understand as well that you are working as you always have been. And it is not always for us to know the timing or the how, or the why you allow and do the things that you do, but God, may we be reminded that you are still on your throne, and that you are still acting, and you still will act, and when you return, there will be no doubt, and you will finally, once and for all, finish off the judgment of all that is broken and wrong, and you will, once and for all, and final, take us to be with you forever. God, this morning, may we be encouraged not to become impatient with you, but to trust in you. God, may you give us the strength to endure the hardships of this life, because we know when your Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us, as Nate said earlier, God, we, because of your power, can't endure, but God, we also know that you've given us one another to be able to love one another and walk with one another, and so God, may you encourage us in that this morning. God, we thank you for your text. We thank you that Jesus came, and we thank you that he's coming back. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, as our music team comes back up, I want to say that in a room like this, I am confident there's hurt in here today. Some have experienced loss recently. Some are dealing with physical ailments that are, man, they're draining, if we're really honest. Some of you, if we're really honest, maybe you had to drag yourself here today because the weight of your anxiety or the weight of your depression was so great that you could barely get here. Look, if that's you here today, then I want to encourage you that this text is a precious gift of God for you today. What a reminder that our hope doesn't exist and doesn't live in anything that is in this world. And it's also to remind you that history is headed somewhere. And everything difficult that you are going through has an end date, has an expiration date. Because that somewhere that history is headed is that Jesus is coming back for his own. Which is you and the oppression and the brokenness and the pain and the suffering and the disappointment that you are experiencing now will no longer have to be endured because it will be done away with. Revelation 21, God gives us a glimpse of what that will be like. 
And John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and will be their God. And listen, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. And then the one seated on the throne says, Look, I am making everything new. Right? Because these words are faithful and true. And then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. Brother and sister, if you're here this morning, you are struggling. The things in your life may feel overwhelming. And it may feel like they're never going to end. But they're going to come to an end. Because the God who loved you enough to send his son the first time to die for your sins is the same God who's going to send his son again the second time to take you home to be with him. I hope and I pray that the coming of our Lord Jesus encourages you today. So now let us sing. Now let's sing as we patiently wait for our Savior.